as I said, uh, beginning that there, there's a misconception as to as to who these guys were. As a matter of fact, you know, in the hymn we sing, we sing, "We Three Kings." You know, "We Three Kings of Orient Are." There really isn't any biblical evidence that these guys were kings. Rather, all the evidence points to the fact that, uh, well, it's believed that these men men came from Persia. Now, if you remember in the Old Testament, Daniel was pretty much the the the, the, the head of a, a group of men that later on were to, were to be called the Magi. David uh, was, a, was a student of the Bible, student of the Scriptures. He was a prophet, and, and, and he used all those things to, to help, whether, uh, whether it was the king of Persia or the guy before him, to glorify God. If you remember, Daniel interpreted a couple of dreams. Uh, he was thrown into the lion's den. But, but Daniel had charge over a group of men some five or six hundred years before the birth of Christ that have become known as, as the Magi. And, and Jewish legend tells us that he, he founded this, this group of men. And they were well versed in the prophecies of Daniel as well as the other Old Testament prophets. And, 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 and based on legend, uh, and, and, you know, biblical legend, it's believed that David taught these guys with the mindset of looking for the king, of looking for the Messiah who was going to come. Tradition tells us that there were three kings, that their names were Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. Now again, we don't know whether or not that's true. But there, there's the, that, that common misconception that there was just three and that they were kings. But many biblical scholars believe that there were as many as 14 of these wise men. It wasn't just the three, that there were as many as 14 of them. And the reason we always associate three with the wise men was because of the of the, the, the gifts that were brought to Jesus. And those gifts, I don't know if you know the significance of them. He, he was given, we see gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold and frankincense were gifts that were, that were, were given to, to honor a king, to, to, to honor and recognize his, his status. But the myrrh was also given to symbolize that he was going to die. Because myrrh was the, 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 one of the main spices they used in the preparation and the preservation of the body for burial. So, so we see how amazing it is that even then there's a purpose for everything we read in the scripture. Th those gifts that were given by those wise men were given for a reason. They weren't given, they weren't given haphazardly. And again, they believe there were as many as, as 14 of them. So you know there must have been a tremendous entourage with these guys. Now just picture the Bible tells us that they went into went into Jerusalem. Imagine what kind of chaos and what kind of commotion that probably caused, whether it was three or whether it was 14, all these camels, all these donkeys, all these men, all these guards, all this wealth that all of a sudden poured into Jerusalem and it caught the ear and it caught the eye of Herod who was the king of Jerusalem at that time. Now, the word king in this sense really doesn't mean much more than ruler or mayor. He was, he was the ruler or the mayor over Jerusalem, and he was put there by, by, by the emperor. But we read in verse 3 here in regards to the men that because of these men that Herod and all of Jerusalem was troubled. And again, who wouldn't be troubled? If we're here, we're here in Stafford and we drive by the courthouse one day and all of a sudden we, we see, for example, say, 
two or three battalions of National Guard all of a sudden show up at the courthouse. You know, we, we'd be asking questions, wouldn't we? Like, what in the world is, what in the world is going on here? And so that's what was going on. It, it troubled all of Jerusalem. It troubled Herod particularly because Herod was, was extremely paranoid that anybody and everybody was out to take his position away from him. As a matter of fact, secular history tells us that, that, that Herod actually had his own son killed so that his son couldn't, uh, couldn't take his, his rulership away from him. So we, we read that, that, that the whole nation or the, the whole city was troubled. And, and one other thing I want to add that would, that would show us that gave them reason to be troubled is, it, is, is because of the fact that it wasn't like these were exiled Jewish men that were coming to find the newborn king. These were Gentiles. These were folks that, that apparently had more knowledge and placed more trust in the Old Testament scriptures than even did the Jewish religious leaders of, of, of their time. Because the Jewish religious leaders had to find the answer for Herod as, as to, to what's been going on. You know, what, what, what are these guys talking about? The king, the king of the Jews is to be born. Because he's thinking in his mind, I'm the king of the Jews. I was put here by, by Rome. You know, what in the world, what in the world are they talking about? So we, we see that, that not only is it, is it amazing in the fact that these weren't Jews, Jewish leaders or Jewish exiles that were coming back to Jerusalem to look for Jesus. These were Gentiles. These were the, un, the unclean. These were the Samaritans, if you will. These were the folks that didn't follow the law. They didn't keep the law. They, they weren't uh, of, the, uh, you know, of the lineage of Abraham or Isaac or even of David. And yet here all these guys are coming talking about wanting to find the king of the Jews. What's also amazing about them is if you go to verse 12, it says, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now keep in mind at the beginning of this series, I said that there was about a 400-year period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, that God did not speak a word to his nation, Israel, in, until, <clears throat> until he spoke to John the Baptist's father. But what was going on in this dream was, was, were angelic beings were speaking again to these Gentiles. We want you to go to Jerusalem. They were being led by a star. Again, Gentiles. Folks that were unclean. Folks that weren't of the faith, that weren't of the law. Yet we see the evidences here of God speaking to these men. As opposed to speaking to the very ones who should have been looking for him. The very ones that, according to the scriptures, were God's chosen people. They were going about their own business. And yet you had somewhere between 3 and 14 Gentiles that had been spoken to by angels. And that were following a star that were coming to look for the king of the Jews. So that's the men. And to me, you know, that, that, that's pretty amazing how God worked like that. When you think of all the when you when you think of all the details, they came from the they came from the east. They they knew nothing of the Jewish race other than probably the Old Testament that they got from uh, from, from Daniel, but yet they placed their faith in it and they trusted it as being true, and they were the ones that were coming to search for the coming king. 
Then secondly, we want, we want to take a look at the star and see how amazing that was. You know, the wise men, the Bible tells us, the wise men saw the star in the east. And what that really means when you think about it is they saw the star in the east, meaning they lived in the east. Persia was east of Israel. Persia was east of Jerusalem. It was east of Bethlehem. We think so many times, well, the wise men saw the star that was in the east. And they headed, which makes sense. If they see the star in the east, they must have been in the west and they're heading to it. That's not the way it happened. They were in Babylon. They were in Persia. They were east of, of Jerusalem, of Bethlehem. And they saw this star and they headed west, traveling to the star. Now, some folks say, folks that don't believe in the miraculous, and even I've seen in a couple of the Christmas shows on, on the History Channel and, and these different things. Well, there was uh, scientists have been able to figure out that, that in the year Jesus was supposedly born, that, that there was some kind of comet that, was, that, was, that could be seen in the sky at night during that time. Or that there were a cluster of meteorites. Uh, that there are historical records of meteorite showers. But folks, you got to remember with me, and we'll talk about it here in a little bit, the Bible says that what happened ultimately, the star rested over the house where Jesus was. Now, a comet can't rest over something. Meteorites can't rest over something. And if it was just in general, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I won't say that. But the, the, the evidence is there that it wasn't something astronomical or something that could naturally be explained away like folks who don't believe in the miraculous do. You know, again, it could have been an alignment of stars. It could have been an alignment of planets. But if this were the case, though, the stars of the planets would have been both over Bethlehem and Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem is only about five miles as the crow flies. Jerusalem's only about five miles as the crow flies from Bethlehem. And so if it were some kind of constellation in the sky, so, some grouping of planets or some grouping of stars with a five-mile difference, it would have been under, it would have been over Jerusalem just as much as it would have been over Bethlehem. So we can we can throw that out of the out of the out of the way. Biblical history, biblical scholars tell us that that it was an astronomic manifest, manifestation. In other words, it was something miraculous that God used for a purpose. This was a God-inspired, God-induced, God-controlled manifestation that in, in human terms, they only knew how to, how to relate to it as, as a star. But we see that there's more to it than that in several places here. In, in verse 9, we read, we read this, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. And so we see that this star wasn't just in one place, but, but we see that it moved. A, a star or a planetary alignment or an alignment of stars, those things can't move. I'm 51 years old, and, and every time I look at the Big Dipper, the Big Dipper is in pretty much the same place now it was when I first looked up at the sky and recognized what it was. The northern, the northern star is pretty much in the same place that it's always been. So we, we see the difference in that the Bible tells us this star moved, it went before them. Verse 9 also says, 
it came and it stood, stood still. It went before them and then it came and it stood still. Now, there's only, to me, there's only two explanations for this. Either it was a, a God-ordained star or like some of the things on the History Channel are probably saying, it was a UFO. You know, I don't believe it was a UFO. So the only thing left is that it was a, a, special, a special manifestation that, that God used. Many scholars believe that this star was something reminiscent of the pillar of fire that guided Israel while they were in the wilderness. If you remember in the Old Testament, when Moses, during the Exodus, when Moses had the children of Israel out in the desert, it said by day they were led by a pillar of cloud, and by night they were led by a pillar of fire. And so a lot of scholars believe that, that maybe this star was something similar to the pillar of fire that, uh, that, that, that Moses and the children of Israel uh, the children of Israel saw. We also see that the star didn't always show itself. In verse 9 it says, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen. Past tense. The star which they had seen in the east, all of a sudden now it's appearing again, and it's moving to the west towards Jerusalem. And then lastly we see here, in regards to its moving in verse 9, it says... It went before them and came and stood over where the young child was. Where the young child was. Again, if it had been a star or some kind of planetary alignment, it could not have had pinpoint accuracy over one dwelling. If it were a star, it would have been over Jerusalem. It would have been over Bethlehem. It probably would have been the same over the Sea of Galilee. Probably would have looked the same over all Israel, but it says that this star, I want to say alighted, but it says came and stood over where the child was. This was a God-ordained, God-controlled manifestation that moved and it led the wise men to the home where the child was. Another curious thing, kind of off the subject, but it's just, just for, we always call these Uli's in, in, in the Navy when we were qualifying for things. Notice in verse 11 it says, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. I don't know if you've ever picked this up. I didn't until a couple of years ago when I, was, when I was studying it. And as I was studying it, a commentator made it obvious. Every time in the book of Matthew where, <clears throat> excuse me, every time in the book of Matthew where Matthew speaks of Mary in connection with Jesus, Jesus is always mentioned first. It's Jesus and then his mother Mary, or the child and then his mother Mary. Again, got nothing to do with the star, but that's just one of those things that I, I thought were kind of neat. So we, we, we've seen the wise men, the men. They weren't the three kings that we, that we sang of. You know, Yeah, maybe three of them had names of Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar, but we don't know that for sure. It was somewhere between three and probably 14 men. They had a tremendous entourage with them. The star wasn't some kind of cosmic or astronomical alignment that in general could have been over the house. And keep in mind in that verse right there also, it didn't say over the manger, it didn't say over the stable, it said over the house. In that same verse, it doesn't say stood over where the baby was, it says it stood over where the young child was. And we're going to get into that right now when we 
when we talk, as we talk about the young child. We've talked about the men. We've talked about the star. Let's talk about the, about the child. You know, Christmas tradition, as I said at the beginning, has it wrong. The wise men did not come to the manger. As good as it looked, I mean, I know in my nativity scene I've got outside the house, I've got the three wise men there, you know, along with the shepherds and the animals because that's what the way tradition always goes. Most of us, if you've got a nativity scene or a crash or whatever you want to call it on display at your home, more likely than not, along with the shepherds, guess who you've got in your manger scene with you? You've got the three kings. But we see here that Christmas tradition is wrong. The wise men didn't come to the manger. These men had been traveling from a long, long way off, probably taking, and I'll, I'll show you why I say that here in a few minutes, probably taking close to two years to reach Jerusalem and to reach Bethlehem. It wasn't like these days, you know, we, if we, we see, man, there's something amazing going on over there at, at, uh, at Quantico. You know, there's a big, huge light over Quantico, what's going on, and we hop in our cars, and five or 10 or 15 minutes later, we're at the front gate or the back gate of Quantico, and of course, they're not going to let us in because everything would be, you know, but we, we, we see it. It's not a matter of, of these guys just hopped on a camel, and within a day or so, they were at, they were at Jerusalem. Keep in mind, Persia was a long way off. And in that day and time, you know what? Camels didn't travel that fast. 2,000 years later, guess what? Camels still don't travel that fast. You know, my favorite commercial and Addy's favorite commercial, that Geico commercial with the camel. Man, he's not sprinting through the office. He's like, guess what day it is? And he's just clomping through the, through the thing like that. So it took them a long time. Secondly, again, we see in verse 11, it says that they came into the house. They didn't come to the stable. They didn't come to the manger. They came to the house where the young child and Mary, his mother, were. Which gets me to the next thing about the child. It doesn't say anything. Biblical tradition talks about the wise men coming to see the baby in the manger. Whereas the Bible tells us that the wise men came to see a young child who was in his home. It supposedly took them up to two years to get there, and by that time, Jesus was no longer a baby in a manger. He was a young child in a house. And so the wise men came to see him. And the, the, even the Greek translation of child here is very clear that they did not come to see a baby. From the Greek we take from this, it means they, they, they came to see an, uh, an, an infant or, or a toddler. Not a baby, but an infant or, or a toddler. And again, it's thought you know, that Jesus was somewhere around two years old. And verses 16 through 18 seem to confirm this. Because we read in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the, by the wise men, because remember, Herod said, when you see the baby, when you find him, when you find the child, when you find the king, come back and tell me because I want to go worship him too. Well, Herod wanted to go to him, but it wasn't to worship him. He wanted to go to him so that he could have him killed, again, because he was a threat to the throne. 
But what we see here is this. When he, when he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. See, Herod had determined from the wise men that they had been following that star for about two years. And so if he were trying to, to kill who was supposed to be the king of the Jews, if he just went around killing the, the infants, the babies, guess what? The king is still out there somewhere because he's older than that. And so to be on the safe side, in his way of thinking, he had his, his army or his soldiers go into Bethlehem and all the districts, in other words, the, the suburbs around it, and they killed every male child that was two years old or younger. That's known as the slaughter of the innocents. And Tammy and I, when we were in Israel several years ago, uh, got to go to a place where they have a church where they believe that it, it was built over the site where a lot of the slaughter had taken place. As a matter of fact, there are, there are actually skulls that are in, in the basement of that church behind bars that, that traditionally were thought to have been, thought to have been uh, the, the skulls of the, the male children two years old and, and, and younger that were killed. Again, Herod wouldn't have put to death every male child if he didn't have to, but he put to death every child two years of age and younger. So Jesus, by the time the wise men got to him, wasn't a baby, he wasn't an infant, he was a toddler. Probably going through the terrible twos like so many of us went through with our kids, but with him being Jesus, I'm sure Mary didn't have to deal with the terrible twos. You know, I'm sure she'd tell Jesus one time, and Jesus, you know, Jesus did the right thing. And I'm going to chase a rabbit here real quick. That's one of the reasons why so many of these books that we hear about on the History Channel and A&E and the Discovery Channel that talk about Jesus when he was young, we can take based on the Bible aren't true or aren't biblically based because some of these stories have, have accounts of Jesus killing birds just so he can touch them and bring them back to life again. Now, why would the Son of God, why would somebody as holy and as righteous as God go around killing things just for kicks and thrills so he can bring it back to life and say, hey, look what I did. You know. Again, back to this though. Jesus was a child. He wasn't a baby. He wasn't an infant. And then my last point today, and y'all are probably saying, wow, that doesn't mean we'll be out of here by 12. It just means I'm on my last, my last thing. I want us to see back in verse 2 that Jesus Christ is the only child, the only baby, the only person that was ever born a king. In verse 2, it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Nobody ever in written history has been born. Anybody that's been royalty was born a king or born a queen. Queen Elizabeth wasn't born a queen. She was a prince. And then when her, I forget my, 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 my history, when her, her mother died, I think it was. No, because her mom was alive until a few years ago. So it must have been her father was king. She was a princess until then. Who's the little royal baby now? I think Andrew was the one that had him. He's, you got Charles 
Andrew and the baby, you know, he's fourth in line for the throne right now. He's like his, grand, his dad and his granddad. He's just a prince. It's going to take three of them to die before the baby can legally become the king. But Jesus didn't have to deal with any of that mess. He wasn't born. Now, yes, they called him Prince of Peace, but he wasn't born a prince. He was born a king. Unlike anybody else in history, he was born into his title, King of Kings. Not only from a spiritual standpoint, but as we talked about a few weeks ago, from, from an earthly standpoint, because both his mama and his daddy's bloodlines ran all the way back to King David. And there's two, the two biggest men in Jewish religion, well, the three biggest men in Jewish religion are Abraham, Moses, and King David. And Jesus, Jesus can be traced back to all of them. So he was, he was born a king. You know, the, 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 he was born a king, but he was born a king that his sole purpose in his reign and rule, if you will, on this earth, was to die for the sins of mankind. He came born a king, but he didn't rule over the world at that time as, as the Jewish leaders wanted. That was the kind of leader they were looking for. That was the kind of Messiah the Jews were looking for. They were looking for somebody who was of the lineage of David that was going to come and physically lead them in opposition against the Romans and overthrow Rome and, and reestablish Israel as its own kingdom. But see, that wasn't the kind of Messiah that the Bible talked about. That wasn't the kind of child that Jesus came to be. That wasn't the kind of king Jesus came to be. He came to be king of kings and lord of lords. And as he did that, he willingly gave his life up. He willingly went, this king of kings willingly went to the cross to, to, to die for my sins and to die for your sins. This king, this person who always was a king in heaven but came to this earth and was born a king, he hung on that cross and for a period of time was separated from God to take my judgment and, and to take your judgment on himself so we don't have to die in our sins so that we don't have to be separated from God for all eternity. And no other baby, no other child, no other king, no other royalty that has ever walked the face of this earth or will ever walk the face of this earth can do what this child king did 33 years after he was born. And that was to go to the cross to make a way for us to have a relationship with this king of kings. The Bible tells us that one day, and I believe one day soon, this king is coming back. And he's not going to come back as a baby in a manger. He's not going to come back as a young child. He's not going to come back as a, if you will, a, 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 as a sheep going to the shears, keeping his mouth shut. He's not going to be meek and humble. The Bible says when he comes back, he's going to be riding a white horse and he's going to have a sword in his hand and he's going to be leading the legions of heaven to come back. And even though he owns this earth, he's going to physically take control of it and begin his rule and reign on this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And folks, I believe with everything in me that that day is a whole lot closer than, than we think. 
All you have to do is pick up the paper or turn on the TV set, you know, and, and, and listen to what's going on and see what's going on. Not just in the Middle East, but with countries like Russia and, and China and Korea. Not just politi politically like that or geopolitically can't say the word today, or geopolitically like that. But look at what's going on in the world around us. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis. And there are some that will say, well, you know what? See, I told you it didn't mean we'd be done by 12. There, there are some that would say, well, you know what? Those things have been going on for years and years and years. Yes, they have. But scientists who study earthquakes, and I don't know how they figure this out, but they've said that we've had more earthquakes in the last hundred years than we have had in, in, in the entire history of the earth. The Bible tells us it is the coming, as the return of this king draws near, that they, they're going to be like the birth pangs of a woman in labor. And if you're here today as a lady and you've had a baby, you know what I'm talking about. At first they weren't, maybe they, in general, they weren't that hard. And they were few and far between. But as the, time came, as the time came to give birth to that baby, what happened? They started coming closer and closer together. They started getting harder and harder and harder until it was time for that baby to be born. And folks, that's what's going on in this world right now. Geopolitically, geologically, from a human standpoint, you know, we're not, we're not better. We're not smarter. We're not more loving. We're not more compassionate than people were 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or at the beginning of time. We're not evolving, as some would have you to believe, into better people. Look at what we're doing today. I mean, Miss Deb Rayburn and I were talking this morning. Look at, and it's not just our children, it's adults. We, we were talking about bullying. Look at how much more intense bullying has gotten over the years. Yeah, I, most of us were probably teased at some point in our lives growing up. But look at how intense it is now. It's not just at school. They get it through text messages. They get it through the Internet. They get it through their tablets. I mean, used to be when if, if you were bullied, you'd go home, and hopefully you'd be safe at home from all of that. But you can't even go home now. And I say that to prove this. We're not getting better. We're not evolving into a more compassionate more loving race of people. We're becoming more and more and more degenerate as time goes on. We may have more gadgets and, gasmo, uh, gadgets and gizmos that, that, that can give us information at the drop of a hat, but we're becoming more depraved, more decadent, more evil, more sinful than we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago. I mean, look at what we're dealing with right now. Forty years ago, you wouldn't even mention homosexuality in, in, in the parking lot. But yet you've got preachers out there today that are saying that it's an acceptable form of lifestyle. It used to be that, that, that children out of wedlock, you kind of kept that hush-hush. Lots of places, it's celebrated now. It used to be if you lived with somebody, you didn't, it, it wasn't advertised. But I see where they actually have showers now pounding parties and stuff for folks that are moving in together. They've got parties now for people when they're getting divorced. Oh, hallelujah, he's getting divorced. Let's throw him a party or let's throw her a party. 
you know. I don't know if you saw in the news, but last week, the, 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 I don't know if it was the state court or the federal court in Utah struck down a lot of the polygamy laws. Now, when the fight started, started up for gay marriage, all the gay activists were saying, when, when Christians said, well, you know what, if you allow this to happen, then the next thing is going to be polygamy, and it's going to be this, and it's going to be that, and it's going to be the other. And, 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 and the, the, the militant gays, the activist gays said, oh, no, it won't, because it's, it's just about a civil right. One person has got as much right to marry somebody that they love as another person does. But in Utah this past week, they struck down a lot of the laws, a, a, a bunch of, of parts of the laws of polygamy right now. So that's opened the door, that's opened the door wide for somebody to say, you know what? I've got a God-given right not to just have this wife, but to have two or three more. And as I say all the time when I talk about this, if you're like me, you have a hard time with the one you got. How these folks could say, well, I want two or three more. But it's getting more than that. You've got groups out there now that are saying, well, you know what? If, if a male can marry a female, and a, if a male can marry a male, and a female can marry a female because that's the ones they love, or if one man can have three or four wives because that's how he loves, well, why can't one man be married to two or three women? Or three women be married to two, man, two men? Or some kind of combination like that. You've got this group out there, this group of perverts called the North American Nambla, North American, North American Man Boy Love Association, that they're even starting to make inroads now. Well, you know what? We should be able to have sex with young boys because that's who we love. We should be able to get married because that's who we love. Once you open that Pandora's box of sin, and calling it anything but sin, then the sky's the limits. We're getting more and more decadent. We're getting more and more sinful. We're not getting better. And again, to tie it all into this, that is why this child came to this earth. Because there's forgiveness of sin. There, there is an escape from sin. Whether, whether it's a same-sex relationship or somebody committing adultery. You know, one of, one of the things I... With, with this Duck Dynasty thing that came out here a couple of weeks is one of the points. I don't like the way he said a lot of stuff. I think some of the stuff he said, I think we're confused because, yeah, he's a celebrity, but he's not a public speaker. You know, he, you know, he doesn't get paid to talk to a bunch of folks, which I don't have a very good command of the, what is it, uh, the English language. You know, and I talk to people every Sunday. But one of the things he talked about is he just didn't say it was a gay thing. He said, you know what, we're all sinners. You know, he said it's not just men and men and women with women. He said it's, it's adulterers, people that are fooling around on their spouses. It's people having, it's fornicators, people having sex outside of marriage. It's men and women that lust after other men and women. And, and I mean, basically he was calling sin what it, what it was and all of us, the Bible says, we're all guilty of sin. There's none righteous. No, not one. Again, the wise men went to see this child who came to this earth to die for those sins. Who gave us in his death and burial and resurrection on the cross. He not only came to give us forgiveness of those sins, but he came to give us the power to turn away from those sins. 
But it all comes down to, have we accepted him as Lord and Savior? Because the Bible tells us that if anybody being Christ is a new creation, old things have passed away and all things have become new. The bottom line is, whatever, regardless of your lifestyle, regardless of how you live your life, the Bible says if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. If we're still living the same way, talking the same way, acting the same way, doing the same thing, going to the same places, associating with the same people, committing the same sins, not just lapsing into it, but running to it and doing it habitually and continually, then according to the Scriptures, we've not been saved. Have we accepted that child that was born in the manger some 2,000 years ago and went to the cross? And if we've truly accepted him, the proof is going to be in the pudding of a changed life. I'm not going to say, as you hear me say all the time, not everything changes just like that. God works in different people at, 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 at different speeds and at different levels. But is there, is there a mindset to be more like God? Is there a mindset to, to give more of ourselves over to Jesus Christ? And you know what? That not only goes with folks that have been living what we call, quote-unquote, bad lifestyles. That goes to us that have been Christians for some time. Do we live with the mindset that we want to be more like Jesus? That we want to give him more of our lives today than we did yesterday? Because for those of us that are Christians, there's something wrong in our walk if we don't want to do that. <clears throat> But the bottom line is, have we allowed this child to save us from our sins and to change us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to...